Hey, y'all, if you enjoy watching your podcast, which seems kind of weird, watching your podcast, but some people really enjoy that. So we have a YouTube channel. You can find it at Heather Parody, P-A-R-A-D-Y. It's also linked up in the show notes. You can hit subscribe. And several of these interviews are actually in person. So you can watch that. Again, that is at Heather Parody on YouTube. How in the world do you tell good stories and spread your message on social media when everybody has the attention span of literally three seconds? I've been deeply studying storytelling, specifically short-form content, and was recommended a book by a friend called Hook Point by this guy named Brendan Kane. Now, Brendan is the OG of digital marketing. He's been in the industry since 2005, has worked with huge brands on their online marketing strategy. He pioneered the very first YouTube influencer campaign. I mean, the guy's been around for a minute. I devoured the book, and y'all know me. Slinda's DMs. Can you please come on and share with our unconventional leaders how in the world you stand out in a three-second world? This conversation is a literal masterclass on short-form content. He shares with us why niching down, niching down, I don't know, might not be a good idea. Why the advice to batch your content might not be serving you, and how do you balance mastering a format while still being open to creativity? Oh my god, y'all, this was so good. I'm not saying batching can never work, but it's not a good strategy strategy for beginners. The top creators on the planet is really mastery of a single format. What point do we let go as creators? Well, it depends. It depends on like what level you want to be at. Damn, that's if a good want- response. <laughs> the week before I-, I said, what is a good book where I can learn hooks? And they said, oh, you need to check out hook point and I was like okay so I put it in Amazon ordered it or whatever and then we got connected and I looked at your bio and I was like this is the dude who wrote it that's so cool and then going through your book watching your content man it is so good and it's everything that I've been looking to learn I feel like I'm a little bit late to the ball game as a creator you know later 30s just learning storytelling for the first time but it's it's hooked me in so much and it's rare to find quality content that teaches you how to get better that's not really gimmicky that feels inauthentic and that's what I really love about your book and your approach Brandon is you're looking directly at data removing the fluff from it and saying there is an actual science to why all of this works so messy ass introduction but thank you for taking time out of your day to jump on here i'm about to slam you with a ton of questions before you start your day there's a story at the very beginning of the book i wanted to start with just to frame this conversation just so folks know a little bit about where you're coming from you wanted to be a film producer and did what everybody does is kind of the grunt work and you're working in the offices of this film production company and the main guy who was over it you decided to approach him with a skill set that you had been developing to bring marketing online you had just completed the first youtube influencer campaign which is wild dude that's so wild And I wanted to start with that story. If you could just frame that real quick for our listeners so people know kind of your entry point into this conversation. So as you mentioned, I wanted to be a film producer. I ended up going to film school to really learn the business side of film and hopefully learn about business in general. And when I showed up there, you know, most of it's around like directing and cinematography and screenwriting. There's very little about business. So I figured the best way to learn about business is start your own. And the most cost efficient way was to start online companies. So I started a few online companies just to kind of learn and experiment. What if it, 
what does it take to kind of get something up and running and manage it and things of that nature? And then, as you mentioned, when I showed up in LA in 2005, I, like you said, I started at the bottom making coffee, copies, deliveries, and I just noticed that when, you know, higher level executives or directors or people that I really wanted to connect with in the industry would ask, why did I move to LA? And I would proceed to tell them I wanted to be a film producer. I could see everybody's eyes glaze over. It wasn't a solid hook because I was one of a million people with the same dream. So working in, in the first studio, whenever we finished a film, I could see this sense of anxiety that would come over the office because we would spend tens of millions of dollars producing a single piece of content. And then we would proceed to spend tens of millions of dollars to market that piece of content. And right. it's an industry where you don't have like years or decades to build a brand. Right. You know, oftentimes these films, you know, unless it's a sequel, have to be known around the world. Hundreds of millions of people have to know about this in a matter of months. So that creates a tremendous amount of stress is when you make a film, same when you make a piece of social content, you have these high aspirations that it's going to work. Mm-hmm. But the 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 financial risk at play is so high as it pertains to film. So that's where I just started to go to the head of the studio and other people and say, listen, I have this experience and knowledge of kind of how to harness audiences on digital platforms and social media is one of them. It was just emerging that was oftentimes a fraction of a cost or no cost compared to the amount of money we were spending on television, print, and radio. And I basically leveraged that experience in starting those internet companies to forge connections at the higher level through this differentiator, through this hook, versus just saying, I just want to be another film producer. That's awesome, but it also takes a lot of balls to go up to this dude and be like, hey, I could actually help you. He started a whole new division, if I'm not mistaken, because of what you presented him with. So what success were you seeing early social that kind of validated and proved that you could bring something to this production company? The first thing is, is like I approach people at that level. If I think that there's value that I can provide to them, I can help them. And that makes it a lot easier for me to not just approach some, you know, high level executive or some celebrity or something like I I just don't approach people at that level, even today, unless there's something that I feel they can benefit from it. And that typically changes the dynamic of the conversation. But as it pertains to your question, I mean, I was just looking you know, specifically, I was looking at YouTube and MySpace a little bit at the time, but YouTube, there was these creators and they, there wasn't a name for them at the time. They weren't called influencers. They weren't called creators. This was like 2006, 2007, the very beginning stages of yeah. all of this. And I just noticed that they were building large audiences. They were getting a lot of views. They were engaging in people through this medium. And I didn't really see anybody harnessing that power. So you know, for example, with the first YouTube influencer campaign, I just made a list of the top YouTubers and I just sent them a DM and say, do you want to interview a movie star? Something super simple and novice. And because there weren't influencer campaigns at the time, there wasn't an influencer industry. The response rate was really high. You didn't really have to pay for those, those integrations. So I just, listen, I'm not going to sit here and say, I thought that social media was going to be what it is today. Right. You know, I, I I just saw that it was an interesting platform where these content creators, these personalities were amassing a large audience and striking a chord through this, this medium and platform. And I just saw that nobody else was doing it. So why not us? Wow. So since then, now you're working at Hookpoint, CEO, founder of that, you're helping brands stick out. That's how I found you, the books that you're writing and 
super awesome content where you're breaking down why videos work, why, how to, how to capture folks' attention. And one of the things that you out of the gate talk about that blows my mind, man, is this generalization principle. Because when you get into this, they're like, if you want to stick out in 2023, you need to niche all the way the hell down. And you're like, well, kind of, but when you're looking at your messaging, you need to take a more generalized approach. Now, I have a specific question about that, but if you could just share that philosophy so we can frame it, and then I'll ask you my question about it. Yeah, the, and the way to kind of look at it, the way, the the reason that this is so important is, you know, when I first started on social media, there's a few million people on the platform. Today, there's close to 5 billion content creators across yeah. all of these platforms. So there is a real fight for attention, and the primary thing that controls the reach and distribution of your content are the algorithms across these platforms. And there's a lot of myths and demonization of the algorithms by a lot of frustrated content creators, but the algorithms are relatively simple. Is It's all retention-based, meaning the longer people spend on these platforms consuming content, the more ads they can serve and the more profit they can generate. Thus, they are looking for content and content creators they can grab and hold attention other than other content creators because they have billions and billions of pieces of content to choose from. So knowing that, these algorithms want content that they could see to millions, tens of millions of people, not, hey, I'm going to create a super niche piece of content about this niche only for this niche audience. The algorithm's not going to go out there and find that audience and just serve your content. And typically that content falls flat because it's just too niche down. But what we say is it's not losing the substance or the subtext of the, you know, your core expertise. It's not about changing who you are because any subject matter can go viral. Like taxes go viral, law goes viral, insurance, real estate, nutrition, any content can go viral. The real core goal of this generalist principle is how can you make your subject matter interesting to anybody? So like to give you an example is I'm sure you know the YouTuber Graham Stephan mm-hmm. who teaches finance to millennials. Mm-hmm. Uh, his most viewed video on YouTube is how I bought a Tesla for $78 a month. Right. So in that video, he doesn't lose the subtext of what he's teaching. He's teaching people these principles that he's learned to master car financing. But he's wrapped it in this solid hook in this context that anybody would be interested to see it. Now right. if it was that video was you know, top five tips for car financing for your next car, it probably would have gotten 10,000 views instead of 9 million views. So again, when we talk about the generalist principle, it's not about changing who you are or your core expertise. It's just packaging it in such a way that anybody could be interested to dig into it. As the numbers grow, you know, let's just say your core target audience off of a thousand views of video is 50%, meaning 50% of the people watching a thousand views is your core target that can buy your products or services. Now, let's just say you get it up to a million views, but that core target drops down to 10%, Right. You know, which is going to happen. But that 10% is far larger than 50% right. of a thousand. Like that's, right. you know, it's, it's, it's a hundred thousand to, to, to 500 people. So that's kind of where that, that core ethos comes in of the generalist principle. Okay, so here's my question with that to press into that a little bit further. So you use this example of buying a Tesla for $78. I know you've talked about, I think, like a $2 million closet. Come look at my $2 million closet. What my little small creator mind goes is like, well, that's cool, Brendan, but I don't have some of these extreme scenarios that I can bring people in. What is a, I guess, more 
less obvious way to wrap it in a frame which would hit the generalized public if I don't have something like watch me cuddle a koala bear for two minutes. I don't know. I'm just making shit up. <laughs> yeah. Do I give you some, another example? There's, uh, you've probably seen Erica Kohlberg on TikTok or Instagram. She's a lawyer. And what she does is she dives into the fine print. So she tells you what happens when your flight is delayed. What happens when your flight's canceled? If your AirPods, mm. you know, break, you know, your iPhone breaks. She takes this, this heady concept and deep concept of law, which is typically very boring and making applicable to the general audience. So there, it's not about big numbers, about buying a Tesla or, or things that, at that magnitude. She's kind of diving it into kind of her expertise and tying it to that overall general population. So it's just really looking at creative ways to take your core expertise and, you know, how can you make that interesting to your mother, your grandmother, you know, people that, that typically would not be interested in, in what you have to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that you teach that's countercultural, and I, I found some relief in this, is this idea of you don't just batch tons and tons of videos, dump them, and then batch more. You're promoting this idea of executing, getting data, and then adjusting your next content based off that, which requires us to possibly, depending on our team, produce quite a bit less, but we're going to have higher quantity. So I have a very specific question about that kind of um, analysis piece of when we're bringing the content back, but is there anything I missed in explaining that? And if anything you want to dig in a little bit deeper, why batching may not be the best approach for creators? Yeah, we've just see, I'm not saying batching can never work, but it, it hurts you when you're trying to figure things out, when you're trying to like get your footing under you. It's not a good strategy for beginners. As you mentioned, if let's just say you sit down with your team, you produce 10 videos in a day, and then you schedule those videos out. Well, let's just say that first video fails and you see something, oh, I should have made this change, but now you got to post those other nine videos because you feel like you need to, to create the, you know, that you put in that effort. So there's an opportunity loss there versus if you were to create a single piece of content at a time, studying and learning, well, why are we creating this piece of content in the first place? What do we think about this piece of content that's going to work? You know, creating that hypothesis. And then once it's posted, if it doesn't work, well, what aspect did we did not get right? Or if it did work, oh, well, we've got a learning. Now let's try and apply that learning to the next video and see if it holds up. Right. So batch producing content there's a massive opportunity loss in terms of learning with each piece of content that you're produced. Now, there's certain people that still produce a single piece of content at a time and don't even look at it or try and analyze it or understand it. So there's still that learning that needs to take place, but that's kind of the methodology and process behind it. Yeah. And one of the things you advocate for is you're not just looking at your videos analytics, but you're also comparing it to other creators. So seeing what you can learn from them. And my question to that is, am I looking for someone who has as similar of a format as I do? Like what are the perimeters there to get the best comparison for my particular model? Like I sit in a freaking chair and tell stories. Am I looking for other people who have, you know, are sitting in chairs and telling stories or do I need to dig a little even deeper than that? Well, I think first and foremost to your point is like, what is the type of content that you want to produce? Like if sitting in a chair and telling stories is the content that you want to produce that excites you, that motivates you, then yes, be looking mm. for other content creators that have a similar format or structure to it. 
just make sure that as you're kind of looking for those content creators is first make sure that you're using a content creator that is having success. I mean, that's common sense, but some people will try and look at a celebrity or like an Apple or something like that. And that's dangerous because a lot of like mainstream celebrities or these major brands, their following base is driven by external factors. Meaning like The Rock is one of the most followed people on Instagram. It's not because he's really good at social. It's because in every movie that he's in, and I'm not saying he's bad at social. He does a good job of engaging his audience. But the reason he's accumulated such a massive audience is every movie he's in, they're spending 100 to $150 million promoting that movie. Right. Like that's a huge external driver. Or like Apple, they spend billions of dollars of advertising. And that advertising has a, you know, a rollover effect to building that social audience. So first, you want to look at social content creators that have generated success, but generated success by social media. Mm. In addition, where most people kind of get caught up, and this is a big part of our process, is you need to do a real deep qualitative analysis of that content creator. For example, uh, there is a clinical psychologist on TikTok, Dr. Julie Smith. Mm -hmm. I think she's got like five or six million followers. She doesn't necessarily sit in a chair, but she stands behind a desk. And what she does is she has a visual metaphor format where she's using visual metaphors to break down complex subject matters like anxiety, PTSD, panic attacks, and things of that nature. Now, most people would look at that on the surface level and just say, oh, I see what she's doing. She's using visual metaphors, so I'm going to do that. Yeah. But the approach that we take is, okay, if we want to do that visual metaphor format and we want to use Dr. Julie Smith as a reference, we'll create a spreadsheet and we have this process called gold, silver, bronze. Mm -hmm. So gold are the high performers. For her, it's probably like 5 million views plus. Silver is the average performers, which would probably be around 800,000 to a million. That's like her average baseline performance. And then underperformers, the bronze for her, probably is in the 100,000 view range. And what we do is we look at those high performers and we look at the qualitative elements of it and determine what's happening in those high performers that's not happening in the average and underperformers so that we can see patterns. And it's not about the content. We kind of push the content to the side. It's about the context of it. Mm -hmm. So it could be things like the pacing, the tonality, the type of metaphors that she like interact with them or or they're just sitting there and asking you to imagine them. It could be captions, title cards, facial expressions, or the environment, these different elements so that you can really get a firm understanding of what makes that format tick. Because oftentimes what's happening today is content creators are told to chase trends and they just look at a trend and like you see this all the time on Instagram or TikTok and it's, you know, use this trending song and you'll go viral. And the reality is, is like less than 1% of people go viral with it. 99% of people don't. So it's not the audio that's the driver, the virality. It's the combination of the audio with the visual that drives the virality. So it's like, again, looking at those formats is once you find one that you're excited about, then really dive in and understand, well, what's the difference? Even within the same creator, you know, Dr. Julie Smith has big discrepancies in performance. She'll have videos that have 10 million views and videos that have 100,000 views. And even if you'd be happy with 100,000 views, you still need to understand, well, what's the driving force behind Mm. that format so that you can really get down and mastering it? It's so good. You know what comes up for me when you're saying that is 
you mentioned in your book, and I'm going to paraphrase here, something along the lines of like, our goal is to blow people's minds with these videos. Like you want them to be so good. But what I could do, Brennan, is there's a new creator. Her name is Hallie Tut, maybe. And I saw her video the other day and I was like, holy crap. I am, I thought I was doing okay. And I'm like, I suck <laughs> watching her stuff. And there's so much I can learn from it, but it's going to require a lot of, a lot of skills I, I need to develop and learn, like just from a technical standpoint. So there's this part of me that's like, okay, do I like really with my next video, take as much time as I need to really put everything, like squeeze every ounce of Heather parody out to make that video great? Or is there ever room for letting something go and maybe getting 1% better each time? Like what's your philosophy as far as pacing? Because we could sit here and improve all day long, my friend. So what, at what point do we let go as creators? Well, it depends. It depends on like what level you want to be at. Damn, that's if a good response. <laughs> it's like, do you want to be in the top 1%? And for uh, some people, that's not. You look at like Mr. Beast, for example, and like he tells the story of how he got started out. And, you know, he spent a thousand days straight with four other YouTubers and they spent 10 hours a day on Skype, just breaking down every single yeah. nuance of it. Yeah. And, you know, he's sped up his production now, but, you know, he would spend four to six weeks on a single video. Yeah. So, and, and you look at his performance, there's not a huge discrepancy in performance in his videos. And that's because he's mastered all these nuances. So it, it really kind of just depends on the level that you want to achieve and also the format that you're going after is like, if you don't feel like you want to spend two or three weeks on a single video, then maybe pick a different format that's less intensive on kind of the technical details and more about the storytelling. Like if you look at Dr. Julie Smith, again, it's just her, I don't know, it looks like she's shooting an iPhone, but if not, it's not a huge kind of right. camera setup. It's more on the visual storytelling nature, and it's more about the ideation, more about the script writing that's driving that. But I would just encourage that, that at least in the beginning is spend more time with each piece of content. And as you spend more time and master these skill sets, it's going to become easier and quicker for you. But it's kind of like the, crunt, the crawl before you run analogy. And oftentimes that can be frustrating for creatives where they just want to move, move, move. But it, again, it just it just really depends on on kind of the level that you're you're achieving for and the purpose that you're using social media for. Such a good response, excellent. This let's let's go into the and I know hook points is not necessarily hooks, but let's go into hooks real quick. There's a comment you made share shareability videos. You said that they will give away the punchline or emotional reveal within the first 10 seconds. And I've heard a little bit about this and I'm, I'm very confused about hooks because you would think that you wouldn't give the punchline at the very beginning because you want that retention. So why is it giving away the value or the, the punchline at the very beginning actually keeps people's attention? Cause I would think I would just like click off then. It's not to say that every hook has to follow that principle. This is just one kind of tool of it. But it's, it's kind of going back to Graham Stephan, how I bought a Tesla for $78 a month. You're giving away the outcome up front to say basically, well, I want to see how he did it. I want to uh -huh. see how this comes about. And if you look at Mr. Beast's thumbnails and headlines, he does a lot of that as well. It's like, I'll tip a waiter a million dollars or something like that. Is you... you want to see that outcome. It's, a, it's kind of the same principle when you look at a movie trailer. Is a movie trailer gives you so much information. Like if you watch Mission Impossible's movie trailer, you see all these actions and these stunts and things of that nature. And you want to see what the end outcome is. 
So it, it kind of like teases the story in a way, and that's where the hook needs to be powerful. It's not just saying, oh, if you give away the punchline in the first 10 seconds, it's automatically going to be an effectful or right. uh, impactful hook and work. It's just kind of the the end structure or the structure of it to kind of lead to that kind of punchline that kind of teases people to say, this is worth my 90 seconds or five minutes or 10 minutes, whatever it may be, to kind of spend the time to see that outcome that I was promised. That makes total sense, total sense. Engagement throughout the video, leaning into that a little bit more, there's these, and I don't know if this stuff works anymore, I still hear it, where people will say throughout the video, like these little, and you won't believe what happened next, or, and then, you know, I mean, they'll have these little like hooky lines throughout it. It feels a little gimmicky and overused, but for some reason people are still doing it. So I'm assuming that that still works. Do you advise people to have these kind of generalized statements throughout the video or should the story just speak for itself? Two things on that. First, the way that we would analyze that of it working is, again, you take that creator, you found their video and they're using that gimmick and maybe the video that you see has a million views on it. Go to their channel, look at a video that has 50,000 views and see if they're using that gimmick. And if they are, then we know that's not the performance driver. Now, in terms of kind of the high-level concept of that, that does work in storytelling, but you don't have to be so on the nose with it. You know, a big part of, of storytelling is, you know, building tension, then releasing tension. Building right. tension, releasing tension. It's why you see in a lot of horror movies, they'll have a comedic kind of character right. or comedic part to release that tension. Because if it was just building tension the entire movie, like your nervous system couldn't handle it and you would just stop watching the movie. But there's also a lot of the YouTubers talk about using something called the Jenga theory, where it's like that stack of blocks that you, you put on a kind of a table and all the friends go around taking a, a, a turn pulling out the blocks. Well, that's the perfect analogy for it is as you're pulling out the block, there's tension being built. Is the tower going to fall over? Is the tower going to fall over? And then when it comes out, it releases that tension. So you do definitely want to create ways to bridge the gap between each of these things. Mark Roberg is another perfect example of it, of like how he, you know, one of his videos that we, we analyzed was, I don't remember the exact title, but how he turned a pool into full of jello. And through that story, he's kind of unfolding how difficult it is. Mm -hmm. And then he'll use things like, and we realize this, and then we ran into this difficult scenario and then it's kind of moving the progression because he doesn't just show how he did it at the, at the beginning, although he's setting the expectation of what we talked about of giving away the punchline in the beginning is like, oh, I want to see a pool made out of jello, right. but he's not showing you exactly how he did it in the first 10 seconds. He's building this story of how difficult it is and the elements that they had to master in order to pull it off. So you do want these transitions to happen to kind of keep building the story. And how do you advise folks to end it well? Because you hear these things like, and click the link in the bio for more if you're like a cold hard sell. I mean, you have that extreme to these really creative endings where folks will loot things at the very beginning, which I'm so jealous over to figure out how to do that. But what are you seeing like in data? I'm sure it's different with your goals, obviously, but how do you tackle ending a video well? Because I think that's one of my biggest pain points right now. Yeah, I mean, again, what we what we do in that scenario is is we look at we look at it as a performance driver. Again, like Erica Kohlberg does a great job of like follow for more for 
kind of more mm -hmm. interesting breakdowns. I don't know the exact language, but if you look at it, she does that in every video. So that's not a performance driver. So at this juncture, I would focus less on, you know, having the perfect ending and more on the hook and the story and thinking mm -hmm. about ways that are more authentic to yeah. do it. Cause you, if, if you in yourself don't feel comfortable doing it in a certain way that somebody else is doing it, that's going to come off on the video. I think as long as you're ending the story in a way that you're giving kind of, you're delivering on the promise and it's something that's going to spark like, Oh, that was clever. That was interesting. I want to find more people are going to take that next step. Totally. It's like if the content is good enough, they're going to click on, on your profile icon or whatever platform you're on and follow you and look at more content. So I would say really just focus on the ending of the story Mm. and then start formulating what is an authentic, fun way that matches your personality that you can layer in the CTA. But I would kind of focus on that last because you need to get the performance up. Like you need to be able to kind of get those breakthrough, those breakthrough performances consistently. And if you do that, everything else is going to fall into place. And once you start getting that breakthrough performance, then you can start layering it in. It's kind of like, you know, one of the big mistakes a lot of our clients make and a lot of people in the social media space is they focus on branding. Like, where's my logo? Where are my colors? Where are all those things? And like, that's the last thing that you want to kind of put in because yeah. oftentimes we see that can detract from the performance, but we want to figure out how do we actually get our content to perform, to resonate, yeah. to, people to know, like, and trust us. And then once we have that baseline, then we can start layering in things like CTAs or logos or things of that nature. That makes sense. I've just been ending with like a stupid joke because my heart is I wish I was a comedian and I'm not. So I just like my only time to throw in a horrible joke at the end. So that's awesome. Here's what I've been struggling with lately is this, and it's not an either or, I'm going to frame it wrong, but mastering something versus, versus innovation. So right now I've landed on something that is working for me compared to what was happening before this storytelling piece, sitting in a chair and so forth. And I read the other day, I was reading about how creators, if you're not innovating and changing things up, you're really limiting yourself. And so I'm kind of, I, I guess, torn between this idea of mastering something and then also to not being afraid to innovate and pull away from it. Cause like you mentioned earlier, are you wanting to sit in a chair and tell stories? I mean, yeah, kind of, but I don't want to sit there till I'm 85. You know what I mean? Like, so how do I, as a creator or other creators approach mastery, but also to introduce innovation and when's the appropriate time for that? So everything that we've seen is, you know, the, the, the top creators on the planet is really mastery of a single format. And I'll start, you know, I started my career in the film industry and, past 80 plus years, every movie follows the same three act structure right. in terms of how they tell their stories. And it's not like Steven Spielberg, every time he makes a movie, he's reinventing the three act structure. He's innovating within that structure. He's mastering the qualitative elements of it. And that makes him one of the best storytellers on the planet. Now, if he was reinventing the three act structure, every time he made a movie, he probably wouldn't be as good of a storyteller as he is today. You look at Mr. Beast, for example, is is like he's mastering the fine nuances within the, the, the structure of the videos that he's doing. He's not completely shifting gears all the time. A good friend of mine, Alex Stemp, has 20 million followers on TikTok, and he approaches random strangers on the street and offers them professional photo shoots. 
you know, he's been using that format for for three plus years to amass a, a followership of 20 million people. So what I would say is really identify that format that you're excited about and make the innovation come within that format and mastering that because so good. it's going to be very difficult to create a, to become a master storyteller if you're just switching the format up consistently. That's so good. Where do you point people to, to learn more about storytelling? I know there's books, I mean, watching other creators, what's, what's your main piece of advice there? I mean, everything that we do is studying other creators. I mean, yeah. we have a team of researchers that that's what we're doing all day long. You know, there are other books on storytelling. I just think that to me, most of those books are just in general storytelling mm-hmm. and storytelling in social media is very different. It's even very different from platform to platform. Like something on TikTok might not work on Instagram Reels, might not work on YouTube Shorts and vice versa. You know, obviously YouTube long form content is typically not going to work on other platforms. So my best piece of advice is is really study the content of the platforms that you want to create content on. But more specifically, as we talked about earlier, identify that format that excites you that fits kind of the stories that you want to tell in the personality and do as much deep dive into that format, both the successful uses of it and the unsuccessful uses of it so that you can become a master uh, of storytelling within that. What is something just big picture question here, but something that you and your team are learning, looking at data, the most recent thing that surprised you? Oh, that's tough in terms of the most recent. I would say, I don't know that this is the most recent, but it's, fascinating to me how well the man on the street format works still today of people approaching random strangers on the street and engaging with them either offering them professional photo shoots or like hunter prosper asking emotional questions comedians do it but it's just and and that format man on the street has been around pre-social media you would see a lot of the late night talk shows do that but i think it's just so so fascinating and interesting to me how well that format works and i think also it it just demonstrates that you don't need like a fancy camera, a fancy production crew and all these yeah. things like these simple interactions between two human beings mm. still interest people at scale and seeing these kind of emotional connections between two people. To me, I think that that, that in some ways it is surprising, but it does make sense because that's at the core of human beings is human connection. Yeah. Looping us back around to the very beginning, we talked about your ambition to be a film producer. I was just curious, now that you've spent, oh my God, countless hours digging in super deep to storytelling through social and and your business and the team you've built and the thousands and thousands of people you've helped and worked with. I'm just wondering, looking back at that original ambition, is what you're doing now scratch that itch in you? Like, are you finding the same kind of thing that you sought out in film production? Because it seems to me as an outsider, almost so similar what you do now. It's just in a different format, I guess. I think it's more fun because making films, making films is a very long and arduous process. I mean, it takes a year or so or longer to put something like that together versus social media. You know, it can take a long time, but not that long. And I think you can Mm -hmm. kind of, produce something, get it out into the world, measure it, learn from it, produce the next thing. And the numbers just scale so quickly. It's, you know, making a movie, you know, you still today need a significant 
marketing budget to kind of really stand out. I'm not saying yeah. there are still some low budget films that crack through, but it's, it's, it's not as democratized as social media. And, and I think that that's the exciting part about social media, even though there's 5 billion content creators on the planet that have these tools to click a button and post something. Anybody has the chance to break through and create an attention attention. It's not about how big of a celebrity you are. It's not about how big your team is. It's not about how big your budget is. It's how good of a storyteller you are. So I think it's really democratized storytelling globally. And that's what I, yeah. I find really interesting and different than film. Amen to that. Well, listen, I have one final question left for you, but Man, I love your work. I've learned a ton from you. It's a, I told you at the beginning, it's a different approach than where my mind, the way I was born goes, but it's a skill set that I've got to freaking develop if I want to level the hell up. Cannot recommend your book, Cook Point, more, but where would you like to guide our listeners to to learn more about you? Definitely is Instagram, y'all, because y'all can just get a little mini class the way that you break down the reason videos pop there, but where else would you like to guide folks to? Yeah, people can go to hookpoint.com. We have a video that breaks down our methodology further. Our books are sold on Amazon. They can reach out to me on Instagram or, or LinkedIn. But I think those are the best places to start. Did you have a membership? Because I thought I heard oh, that yeah, in another interview. To, yeah, they can go to goviral.hookpoint.com where essentially we do weekly breakdowns. So like we actually do the research for for people in that membership We've been doing it for about a year and a half, so we've done about about 60 breakdowns, and they're pretty in-depth. They're like 15 to 20-page PDFs with like breaking down a format or a creator and actually like breaking down the nuances of what like what's the difference between a high performer and low performer and those and, and really gleaming the insights to them. Well, hot dog. I was looking for that. I didn't see it on your website, so glad I brought that up. Very last question. It's written on my wall here. It says the things that made you weird as a kid make you great today. So Brendan, looking back at yourself as a little boy, could you identify something really weird about you? Very weird that you actually embrace now and know makes you great. I would say, you know, I, I had the entrepreneurial bug at a very young age. As I, w I don't remember this, but I was told that I would take my toys and go and knock on neighbors' doors and, and try and sell them to make money. And I don't even know if I knew the concept of money, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I had that entrepreneurial spirit very at a very young age. Very cool. Very cool. Brandon, thanks for your time today. This is awesome. My pleasure.